0: But take our Bibles here, and there in Jeremiah twenty-nine, we're going to begin reading right there in verse number one, and uh, down to verse thirteen or fourteen or so. Uh, But let's let's stand, please, if you don't mind, to honor the reading of the Word of God. Jeremiah chapter twenty-nine. Look at verse number one. The Bible says God writing, uh, inspiring the words of Jeremiah. Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem unto the residue of the elders which were carried away captives, and to the priests, and to the prophets, and to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. After that, Jeconiah, the king, and the queen, and the eunuchs, and the princes of Judah, and Jerusalem, and the carpenters, and the smiths were departed from Jerusalem. Notice there is a parenthesis there, so it kind of picks up again after verse number 1. So it's the letter, the people who Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon at the end of verse 1. Verse 3, by the hand of Elassah, the son of Shaphan and Gemara, uh, the son of Hilkiah, another other there, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent into Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, uh, king of Babylon. And then the letter says this, verse 4, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captive, uh, whom I have caused, To be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon, build ye houses, and dwell in them, and plant gardens, and eat the fruit of them. Take ye wives, and beget sons and daughters, and take ye wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, that ye may be increased there, and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city. "...whether I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray unto the Lord for it, for in the peace thereof shall ye have peace." Verse 8 says, "...for thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, let not your prophets and your diviners that be in the midst of you deceive you, neither hearken to your dreams which ye cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely unto you in my name, I have not sent them, saith the Lord. For thus saith the Lord, That after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end that then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you, and ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. And I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity and I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, saith the Lord. And I will bring you again into the place whence I caused you to be carried away captive. I'm going to read verse 13 again. And ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you again uh, for allowing us to be here Allow us to, to gather in your name, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that for your presence here, the presence of your Holy Spirit, the power, the unifying power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, bring us together, Lord, as we worship you in song and in sermon, in spirit and in truth, Lord. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please, please be seated. So here in Jeremiah 29, we have a very interesting passage. There's some couple popular passages in there, but I want to read another passage. Uh, then we'll come back to that, and in the book of Isaiah, chapter 10, verse 4, leading up to this period of the captivity that we're talking about here, um, the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 4, Jesus or God speaking: "Without me, they shall bow down under the prisoners, and they shall fall under the slain. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand." is stretched out still. His hand is stretched out still. And that's kind of what I want to entitle this message this morning. Even though God is going to cause some pain into his people by making them be carried away captive, we see that at least twice in Jeremiah 29, God caused them to be carried away. Now, it's because of some of their actions. But for all of the, even though all his anger is not turned away, his hand is stretched out still. And that's what I want to focus on. We're going to get into some weeds, if you you will, this morning, get into the verses here in chapter 29, but never forget through all of this that God's hand is still stretched out. He is there to extend and offer to come back to Him. And for us to get a better understanding of what's going on here in Jeremiah chapter 29... It's good to understand the times in which they live. Now, we know that the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, they were divided under Solomon's sons. Uh, the northern kingdom has already been um, conquered uh, by the Assyrians. They already came in and conquered the northern kingdom and, and intermarried with them and, and cast the, the seed all throughout the world. And this southern kingdom of Judah has still remained. Another hundred years have gone by. And Nebuchadnezzar is there and he's there to take them away captive. And God ordained Jeremiah to be a prophet while he was still yet in the womb, according to Jeremiah chapter 1. He raised him up during this time to be a voice of truth, to be a voice of reason, to be a voice of stability, to be God's voice. Even when God's people were in rebellion. Even when God's people were in rebellion. And so much were they in rebellion that God had already promised them that this is going to happen. This captivity is going to happen. You're not getting out of it. Whether it was inevitable, now, whether they repented or whether they did not repent, they're going to Babylon. There's no changing that. God has fed up with it. In fact, Isaiah uh, 5, Isaiah chapter 5, speaking about this carrying away, in verse 26, the Bible states, "This is an interesting passage to me that God will lift up an ensign to the nations from afar, and will hiss." Unto them from the ends of the earth. In other words, God lifted up a banner to mark the spot of attack there for Judah and then hissed. He then, wow, that was a really bad whistle, wasn't it? He then (laughs) whistled to all of the other nations, namely King Nebuchadnezzar, come get Judah. Come get them. I'm going to read that again. God's going to lift up an ensign to the nations, a banner from afar, and will hiss unto them from the end of the earth. Come get these people. Come get them. In other words, God was fed up with their lukewarm commitments. God had come to a point where I am no longer going to entertain your solemn assemblies. I'm not going to listen to your prayers. I'm not going to receive your sacrifices. King Babylon, King of Babylon, come get these people. Get them out of my land. He was done prodding Judah to return to himself. And he knew, God knew that captivity was the only hope for a remnant, for a remnant. And again, as peppered throughout certain parts of Scripture leading up to this time, his, even though God's anger was not turned away from his people, his hand is stretched out still. His hand is stretched out still. And Jeremiah was used greatly by God to convey this wonderful offer of God's amazing grace, His stretched out hand. And as we get started this morning, I'd like to say, for us even today, whatever position we're in, whatever circumstance or situation, God's hand is still stretched out. You know, there is no place, no place in this world, in your life, in any situation, in any, in any time, there is no place too dark or too wicked where God's grace cannot be found. With respect to the wickedness in this world, there was arguably no darker time in our history, in the history of the world, than immediately before God destroyed the world with a flood. Genesis 6-5 states that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every, not most, every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a dark time. Verse 8 says, though, Noah found grace. Noah found grace. It's evident in this life that we live that as long as our Lord tarries, there's always going to be a lifeline. There is always going to be a lifeline. Grace can always be found as long as our Lord tarries. Regardless of the times, regardless of our understanding of the times, God is not willing that any should perish, and he desires to lead those who have a desire to follow him. And this truth is clearly evident in the passage, I believe, for today's sermon here in Jeremiah 29. God gave Judah some promises to hold on to, even though he was punishing them severely with Nebuchadnezzar. Even during defeat and captivity, God gave them some promises that they can hold on to, they can cling to. And even though there are some specific promises in the text that are clearly for the original audience, there are a handful of principles in the text that we can learn from today. And the first truth I see, it's probably not going to be surprising to you for me to say this, because I say this quite often. The first truth we see in the text is a clear focus on God's word over man's word. God's word over man's word. Look at verse 4 again. He says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives whom I have caught uh, Cause to be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon, build ye houses. And he tells them that in verse 5, do, do some things. Verse 6 says, take your wives and, and marry your wives together. Verse 7 says, seek the peace of the city, whether I have caused you to be carried away. Verse 8, for thus saith the Lord of, God of hosts, don't listen to those prophets. Let not your prophets or your diviners that be in the midst of you deceive you. Neither hearken to your dreams which ye cause to be dreamed, for they prophesy falsely unto you in my name. I have not sent them, saith the Lord. And then he goes on with verse uh, 10, that the Lord says that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you, and I will perform my good word towards you in causing you to return to this place. So number one this morning, we see a focus on the word of God. The word of God. Now we've already mentioned the fact that the carrying away of Judah, the carrying away of these rebellious Jews and their captivity in Babylon was inevitable. It's going to happen. But in the following verses here in Jeremiah 29, God gave a clear mandate, some clear guidance, and while they were in captivity they needed to do some things. Because they are still his people. Even though they're going, they are still his people to whom he gave guidance. And in this fact, I think there is a A timeless application, I think we can see here, for we too, as Christians, we're not living in Babylon, of course, but are we not living in a home, away from home? I mean, are we of the world or in the world? Uh, We are in the world, but we are not of the world. So we are also living away um, from where we're supposed to be at permanently. We live in a land that's not ours. Both Hebrews 11, 1 Peter 2, and many other places call us pilgrims. This is where we just pass through. And while we are to be deep-rooted people, we are to be a deep-rooted people in Christ, in the work of Christ, in where God's planted. I've heard many times that we are to grow where we are planted. And that means if you're only here for two years or three years or five years, grow. Put those roots down and let God move you. Let God move you. So we are to be deeply rooted, no doubt about that. But we're still pilgrims. And while we're pilgrims, we we are to follow the Word of God. Put differently, I think we can conclude in the text that some of the prophets were saying one thing and God was saying something different. God, some of the prophets were saying, as we put it together in, in a broader understanding of the text, they were saying that God is not going to allow Judah, actually before they even left, God says, he's, or this prophet said, God's not going to allow y'all to be carried away. Fight, 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 fight. And by the way, God was saying the opposite, surrender, go peaceably to Babylon. So these Jews were now saying that God's not going to allow Judah to be in Babylon that long. You're going to go there, you'll have an uprising, you'll come back, and God is going to allow you to come back. Don't put your roots down. But God said build houses, build houses, plant vineyards, give your children to be married so they could have children and seek the peace of the city. He even instructs in verse 7 that the Jews were to pray for their new home away from home. But you could go there for a long time. We are also to pray for our home away from home. And in verse 10, we see that they're going to be there not just for a couple months, 70 years. I don't think we have any people that have been in one place for 70 years. It's very unlikely these days, at least in in our sphere of influence here. But 70 years, God tells them they're going to be there. So we read that these false prophets are saying one thing, and God through Jeremiah is saying quite quite another thing easy question here. Who are they to believe? Who are they going to believe? Who should they believe? Man or God? And as simple as this question is and as simple as this answer is, both are still relevant for us today, more than we like to imagine. Do we ultimately follow God or do we follow man? Do we follow the words of man or do we follow the words of God? We, of course, are to follow the word of God. And for us, just because we live in the time in which we live the new testament period our first mandate from the word of god is to repent and believe the gospel message we are to turn from sin and self to the lord jesus christ so i know if if you're here this morning and if you've never turned to the Lord Jesus Christ, for eternal life, for salvation, for a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That is our first mandate. That is the dispensation in which we live. That is the command in which we live. Acts 1730 says that God commands all men, this is verbatim, by the way, all men everywhere to repent. All men. We are to turn from our sin and self to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to recognize that the best of me and the best of you are nothing but filthy rags, and then put our faith into the finished work of Christ on the cross of Calvary. We talked about Noah a little bit. You know, just like his family literally entered into his work, right? They entered into the ark, into Noah's work. We are to, by faith, enter into Christ's work, the cross. We must accept what Christ did for us on Calvary, spiritually enter into the work of Christ by faith. This is our first mandate. And that mandate, that obedience enables us to see so much more. You know, the world's got it wrong. It's not seeing as believing. It's believing and then we see. Believing and then we see. We can't approach this only intellectually. We need faith. We need faith. Without faith it's impossible to please God. Our first mandate is to follow Jesus Christ and to understand. And it helps us to see, understand, and obey all the other mandates found in the Word of God. You know, for Judah, in, <clears throat> excuse me, in Jeremiah's day, as well as in our day, God said to not listen to any of what the false prophets say. Don't listen to them. Don't listen even to your dreams or to their dreams. God says, listen to me. Don't listen to those false prophets through Jeremiah. Don't listen to their dreams. Don't listen to your dreams. Listen to me. Why? For they, they, false prophets, their dreams, your dreams, and so forth, they prophesy falsely unto you in my name. I have not sent them. So let me ask you a practical question this morning. If you were a Jew, an average Jew living there in Babylon, how are you going to tell what was from God and what was not from God? I think the answer is easy. They were to listen to God-appointed men like Jeremiah. But then you'd probably ask, well, how would they know if Jeremiah is appointed from God? Well, I think to give people clarity, and because God is not the author of confusion, God would make abundantly clear that Jeremiah was his man, like Isaiah and Ezekiel and so forth, by giving them unknowable prophecies that would come true, by, by making uh, miracles come through these men, undeniable miracles that were clearly from God. But for us today, and according to Revelation chapter 22, verse 18, we know that there is no new prophecy that can be added to what is written, which makes it even easier for us to discern what's right. And what's wrong? In other words, we don't have to worry about false prophets coming around. We don't have to worry about them coming around and telling us to to do something different. We have the complete revealed word of God. Everything falls under, under, under the authority of this word of God, which, if taken at face value, is surprisingly easy to understand. Surprisingly easy to understand and yet inexhaustible at the same time. For the Jews, God meant what he said. God meant what he said. Build houses. You're going to be there for a while. Plant gardens. Let your children be married. You're going to be in Babylon for a long time. Settle down. It's going to be 70 years. And I believe for God, he means also what he says. Repent. Follow Jesus Christ. Fear God. Keep his commandments. A couple weeks ago, I preached at the end of Ecclesiastes, the whole duty of man. Do you all remember that? Fear God. Keep his commandments. It's the distinct duty of us to repent and follow Jesus Christ. And if there's ever any doubt on who we are to believe in this world, we have the word. We have the word to keep us straight. And while we live as strangers and pilgrims, this is our guideline, our, our, our lamp, our light, if you will, to help us live in the home that we have away from our home. And by the way, if you have a desire to control what you dream, maybe you woke up someday and you were like, man, why did I dream that? What in the world? I don't want to dream that anymore. There is actually a, some Bible verses that help us in this. I have it in here, in a, but, but, but please keep a mark here and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This is something that helped me out. I didn't have any crazy dreams, but we always have those dreams we don't want to have. And while you're turning, I give you a, 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 a silly story. When I was in in high school, y'all remember those Rubik's cubes? Not the square ones that the smart people do, but the triangle ones that I could figure out. You know, the, the the little I was, I got, I did competitions with those things. It was fun, you know, in our sixth grade or whatever it was. You know, we thought we were geniuses. Anyway, I turned that thing so many times that many times I would fall asleep at night. And there's things that would be twisting in my mind. There's turnings and stuff like that. How did they get in my dreams? Hmm. We, We put in our minds what we want in our minds. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. The Bible says that the weapons, in verse 4, verse 4 and 5, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. That means they're not worldly, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Casting down imaginations. How do we cast down imaginations? The weapons of warfare. Casting down imaginations and casting down every high thing that exalteth itself, get this last phrase, against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought, every thought to the obedience of Christ. We can control our imaginations by getting in this book pouring ourselves into the Word of God, allowing these things to influence us, allowing the weapons of warfare, studying all these things, it will actually control what you imagine. Think about that for a moment. It's true. Try me. Tell, me. tell me if it don't work. Let me know. So the Word of God alone is our anchor. The Word of God is our anchor. But not only do we see the words of God in this letter from Jeremiah to the captives in Judah, we also see... The mind of God, which I think is fascinating. We see the mind of God. Look at verses 10 and 11 again. For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you. And I will perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace, and not of evil, to give you an expected end. We have the mind of God, the thoughts of God. And in this, we, te- we see at least, we can go a whole lot more, but we'll see at least this morning two different perspectives on the mind of God in this passage. We see his thoughts on prophecy. That's a little commercial for next Sunday. We see his thoughts on prophecy, and we see his thoughts on his people. So let's look at first God's thoughts on prophecy. Notice verse 1 again of Jeremiah chapter 29. Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem unto the residue of the elders which were carried away captives and to the priests and to the prophets and to all the people from uh, uh, whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. And then we see all the way down thus saith the Lord which is actually in the letter. And then verse 10 tells us that after 70 years, a continuation in that letter, that after 70 years be accomplished, I'm going to visit you, I'm going to perform my good, my good word towards you, and I'm going to bring you back to this place. So this letter from God to Jeremiah, let's be practical here, was from one place to another. It was from Jerusalem to Babylon. So God makes it abundantly clear that in this letter from Jerusalem to Babylon, that they're going to come back from Babylon to Jerusalem, this place. That's that's the place he's talking about. Return to this place after 70 years. Now think about this for a moment. Now you're a Jew. You're living there in Babylon. And when you get this letter, when you're reading this letter, beginning there in verse 4 you get down to verse number um, 10 where he tells us about the 70 years. This letter at that point is pure prophecy. 100%. 100% prophecy. This is something that's going to happen 70 years from now. And I'm reading this in my hand. 70 years, pure prophecy. Jeremiah wrote about the future. Now, if you were living as a Jew in Babylon, how would you interpret that letter? Would you take God at his word? Would you believe him? Now, if you were 15 years old, would you believe that if in 70 years, when you're 85, you're going to go back? Would you believe that? You're reading this pure prophecy. It's saying in 70 years, you're going, you're going home. Would you believe that God meant 70 years? As in 70 celebrations of the Passover, 70 celebrations of the Day of Atonement. Or would you change it a little bit? Or would you downplay it a little bit? Would you make it mean something different? Well, it's clear in the text here, I believe, that God meant a literal 70 years. It is clear that Jeremiah understood it to be a literal 70 years. And history tells us that it was a literal 70 years. As a man who was taken captive from Jerusalem around the age of 15, Daniel also (laughs) believed that it was a literal 70 years. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 2, he writes this, I, Daniel, understood by books, The number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. He's referring to this passage. Came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's going to go through a desolate place for 70 years. And then I'm bringing my people back. Daniel believed in a literal 70 years. So we learn a lot about God's thoughts on prophecy by reading about how literal and how accurate fulfilled prophecies that we can see that are fulfilled, how they came to fruition. And it helps us understand quite a bit about unfulfilled prophecies in the Bible. In other words, there is going to be a literal rapture. It's going to happen, and we'll talk about that this coming Sunday. There's going to be a literal seven-year tribulation, a literal uh, 1,000-year reign of Christ, and we'll talk about how we're to understand those things. The things that the Bible speaks of that are going to come to pass, unless they are prefaced with similes or they're scripturally cloaked in allegory, scripturally cloaked, not added in to it. They're going to come to pass literally. The books of Daniel, the books of Ezekiel, Revelation, and others that speak of things to come, whether written, they were written for us to understand. I like the fact that the Bible is God's Word to us. It's not written to be spooky. It's not written to be mysterious. Yes, we got to put forth some effort to understand it. But it's not written for us to be confused. It's not written in a way to keep us waiting through seas of what ifs. What if this happens? What if this happens? Trust the book. To the Jews in Babylon, God says to not be fooled by those false false prophets. So we can learn from that. We see that God says 70 years is going to come. The the false prophets are saying that's not going to happen. Today we see that the Lord, we believe that the Bible teaches that the Lord is going to return. But there are some in 2 Peter and other places that says the Lord's not going to come. There are some today that says the Lord's not going to come. We are to trust the book. Trust the book. God says don't be fooled by false prophets because after 70 years, I'm coming. I will visit you and I will perform my good word to you in causing you to come home to Babylon, or to Jerusalem. And God for us will also keep his promises for us. He will return to this place to catch us away to forever be with the Lord. So we see the mind of God in his thoughts on biblical prophecy, just a little passage here. But then we see the mind of God in his thoughts for his people. God's thoughts on his people. Verse 11 again says, I know the thoughts. That I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. Now, over time, this passage, verse 11 here, has leaped off the pages, has it not? Has leaped off the pages into the hearts and minds and memories of many Christians, rightfully so, as a reminder of what God thinks about his people. And these are great words from a great God to a people who greatly needed them. Think of the circumstances, again, of the people of Judah. Think of the circumstances involved in being carried away captive. So if you were to study this out and look at Daniel and some of the other passages and even some secular history, we would see that Nebuchadnezzar sieged. He courted on, if you will, all of Babylon, uh, or or, or of Jerusalem, rather, for almost two years, blocking off all connections. The only thing uh, uh, Jerusalem would have had was water because of the conduit that was built prior to this. But he blocked off all the resources, including food, supplies, weapons, and ammunition, all those things, before he entered Jerusalem. During that time, there's even parts of the Bible where some people, some Jews there, would turn to very dire things to survive. Cannibalism, even. It was a long time waiting for Nebuchadnezzar to break through those doors. Upon his entrance into Jerusalem... Many of those Jews were violently murdered without respect to life. They were beaten and left for dead. And when he carried away those to Babylon, the ones that left, he thought they were going to die, and if they were still alive, they were poor. There were some. That's where we get our Samaritans from, mind you, in a mixture of the northern kingdom when they came back and all those things. So Nebuchadnezzar sieged Jerusalem. He broke into Jerusalem, violently murdered many of them, and the rest were no doubt forced march all the way to Babylon. 650 miles. For a comparison, at the end of this 70-year captivity, Ezra, in one of his returns, took four months to walk from Babylon to Jerusalem, but he did it peacefully, peaceably and as free men. I don't think it was that nice going there. As a conquered people, and knowing a little bit more about the cruelty of Nebuchadnezzar, we can rest assured that it was not a pleasant trip for the Jews to go to Babylon, nor was it a pleasant trip for their stay in Babylon. So after they got there, many of the captives, including the likes of Daniel, Ezekiel, and some others, they didn't live in ideal situations. Many of them, no doubt, wondered what their future would be. They were just carried away. They saw their loved ones, moms and dads, brothers and sisters, just murdered in the streets after Nebuchadnezzar's army just came through Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. Nebuchadnezzar has the title of destroyer of King Solomon's temple. Wiped off, wiped off the map. And now here they are in Babylon sitting down. Put yourself in their shoes. What would you be thinking? Were you still God's people? Did God just kick you out of the Holy Land? Did God still care for me? And then they hear about this letter floating around, a letter from Jeremiah. What did Jeremiah have to say? I thought Jeremiah was dead. I thought Jeremiah was in prison. He was, in fact, in prison, in and out. He was not treated very well. But they get this letter, and they read verse 11. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace, and not of evil, to give you an expected end. What joy, must have filled their hearts. Now, we're early on. It still says 70 years, so we're at least in the first year here. They just made this horrible, horrendous march all the way to Babylon. Many probably died along the way, and they get this letter, and God says, I think good things about you. God, I've not forgotten you. Yes, times are tough. Yes, I've caused you to be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon, but I am still your God, and you are still my people. Listen, God may allow us to go through some crazy things in this life. God may allow us to go through some pretty painful circumstances. And He may allow even the loss of our nation. They lost their nation. But God was still their God. And He is still our God. And He wants every one of us who are His to know that He thinks the world of us. He does not find pleasure in punishment. He rejoices in reconciliation At the end of Ezekiel chapter 18, God says to those in captivity, cast away from from you all your transgressions, whereby you have transgressed. For why will you die, Israel? I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth. I have no pleasure. And he pleads with them multiple times there in Ezekiel, saying, live, turn to me and live. And here through Jeremiah, God says, I know the thoughts that I think toward you. Thoughts of peace, not evil, to give you an expected end. To be sure, this verse was not written to us. It was clearly and specifically written to the Jews who were taken away captive from Jerusalem. But that the principle in this verse rings true to us today is confirmed in hundreds of other verses. And many other verses that clearly demonstrate God's thoughts of goodness to God's people. King David wrote in uh, Psalm chapter 8, verse 4, What is man that thou art mindful of him? And 2 Peter 3, 9 states that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And as clear as clear can be, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, uh, that passage states that God desires to have all men to be saved, verbatim, and to come Unto the knowledge of the truth, not to mention John 3.16 and many other passages, many other passages that clearly show God's thoughts to us are indeed thoughts of peace and not evil to give us and expect it in. To the Jews in exile, and for Christians today who are in this world, but not of the world, God shares his thoughts with us. He didn't have to write that, but he did. He shares his thoughts with us. Why? What's the end of that passage say? To give us an expected end. That phrase expected end easily speaks of hope. In fact, the word expected is translated more often as hope than any other word. Hope. In other words, God lets us see a glimpse of the end. The 70 years for them. The return of Christ for us. God lets us see a glimpse of the prophecy so that we can have hope for today. Which truly brings us to our last thought on this passage this morning. And we won't be here much longer this morning. But notice again, verses 11 down to 13. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end, that then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you, and ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart, with all your heart, God, through Jeremiah's letter, has encouraged the people to follow the word of God, not the word of man. He has reminded them that while they may be in exile in a faraway land, his thoughts to them are still good. And in this we see the mind of God. And now in the last few verses of our text for this morning, I think we see the grace of God. The grace of God. I don't know if if you're reminded from time to time of how great our God is, how great the grace of God is. John Newton really sang amazing grace. And it's not even, the grace cannot be described by even those words. What a God we serve. After providing hope in the mind of man, by sharing the mind of God, Jeremiah continues by quoting God, by saying, Ye call upon me, that when ye call upon me, and when you pray unto me, I will hearken. And when you search for me with all your heart, you're going to find me. You know, we serve an extremely patient God. A patient God. You know, we, there's books written about the patience of Job. I see the patience of God in the book of Job. We serve a patient God. The further writings of Jeremiah to the Jews in exile... The writings of Daniel about the Jews in exile, Esther, Ezekiel, the last 27 chapters of Isaiah, they all demonstrate that even though the Jews had this letter, chapter 29, that God thought good things about them, the evidence that they lived a good, godly, faithful, as a faithful people, is lacking. They still rebelled, even in the 70 years. All of those writings demonstrate that the Jews in exile We're not a perfectly faithful people, but God still extends his grace to those who look for it with all their heart. I think it's mind-blowing that God says that you're going to go to captivity for 70 years, and they deserved every bit of it, but they didn't deserve to come back. But God brought them back anyway. And as Isaiah wrote many times, even though God's anger is not turned away, his hand is stretched out still. So as we began this message, so shall we end. There is not a place too dark in this world where God's grace cannot be found. In your darkest hour or just in your everyday routine, know that God's hand is stretched out still. It's still there. God's grace is available. All day long, Jesus says that he stretched out his hand to a disobedient nation. Whether you simply need this morning to be saved from your sins and brought into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ, or you simply need grace for the moment, grace for something you're going through that doesn't make any sense, grace, God's grace is available. Grace for whatever God allows you to go through, even as something as dire as the loss of a nation, God can give you that grace. Know that God's hand is stretched out still. We have the word of God to keep us on the right track and to guide us in what is from God and what is not from God. We know the mind of God to give us an expected end, to give us hope that goes beyond the grave. Only hope in Jesus Christ is a hope that goes beyond the grave. And we have the grace of God ready to be dispensed when we seek God with all that we are. All that we are. Wherever you are today, God's hand is stretched out still. Reach for God and find the grace He so desperately wants to give you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.